two crickets on a thorn tree. Isn't it in a thorn tree? On a thorn tree. In a thorn tree. On a thorn tree. The position of the crickets to the thorn tree is not particularly important. But it, but it is important that there are crickets. And there's a tree. And there's a tree. And there's two of them. Dos. Here we are, back from our holiday revels and relaxations. Well, one of us is. Uh, I am. You're not. I'm I mean, also you, back. I'm you, here. I'm you, definitely here. You're here, but did you holiday revel? I did. Ah, I don't know. You've been working much harder than I have. I went to the coast. Oh, okay, so I have been back for longer than you've been back. <laughs> you've just gotten back. Um, but we haven't had a chance to sit down and talk about current affairs, I suppose, through the lens of, of a more philosophical outlook with a deeper historical, uh, an opportunity not only to, to, to have historical understanding, but to make it explicit and draw the connections between what's happened before and, and what we're seeing today to give that context. Uh, and also to talk about uh, international affairs. Yeah, I suppose so those are the three things we like to do on this podcast. Uh, we've got three things today uh, for you. We're going to first talk a little bit like um, Trump killing an Iranian dude. Yeah, We're going to talk a little bit about uh, Putin's machinations in Russia and what uh, nefarious schemes he has, or not so nefarious schemes, depending on how it is. And... Um, Well, uh, Gabriel's been talking a lot about the concept of esteem investing, um, which uh, is a a pretty actually useful concept. Um, And it's something that some people should really be doing this year. But we'll get on to that. Yeah. Let's start off with Iran, uh, which is something that we've talked about quite a bit. And so in a way, I was less surprised than I think I would have been, uh, having spoken to you, when uh, Soleimani was... Uh, assassinated and with the aftermath but still it's pretty momentous and it got a lot of people very worried about world war three i studied in america i went to university in america so a lot of my facebook friends are americans and my my news feed was blowing up yeah with with really severe uh, angst and also a lot of jokes like, okay, well, I should be going back to work after the holidays, but World War Three, <laughs> maybe another glass of rosé. <laughs> that's uh, that's the right approach, I think, to the to, to global calamity. Um, so let's just talk a little bit about exactly what happened here. Yeah. So You're basically, on the the late third of January, um, a dude called Qasem Soleimani was traveling from the Baghdad airport to meet some people in Iraq. And he was killed by a U.S. Reaper drone, which launched a big old missile at his convoy. He was traveling with a bunch of uh, high-ranking, what are they called, Um, militia leaders active in Iraq. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this follows just after there was an uh, attack by a whole bunch of sort of protesters and militia people aligned to Hezbollah and Iran uh, on the U.S. embassy in Iraq. and was that a deadly attack? It was not a deadly attack, but it did force... Uh, there was an attempted entry by the protesters. Uh, they had written Qasem Soleimani as our leader on the walls of the embassy, and they had tried to breach in, and apparently the U.S. ambassador was for a few hours until he could be evacuated out, cowering in the... Uh, well, not cowering, but hiding. I don't know, depending on which side you're on, I yeah. suppose. <laughs> cowering or hiding in Weak the... Weak infidel, uh, cowering in the basement. <laughs> in, in the safe room. 
uh, because they were worried that this could turn into a sort of hostage situation, a little bit like happened in Iran in uh, 1980, where uh, an angry crowd basically storms the thing and then takes all the diplomats and stuff hostage. Mm -hmm. And then they've got great bargaining chips to push things in the direction they want to go. Okay, so let me just clarify two things. So where he was assassinated, he was en route to Baghdad. Yeah, you just landed at the Baghdadi airport. So he was actually in Iraq. He was in Iraq, yes. And he was en route to some base. Uh, I'm not entirely sure. I think okay. he was he was en route to a meeting. So yeah. So where? So what? And what exactly he was doing is a matter of some mystery. Yes. The central in, the the CIA is it, or one of the intelligence agencies says that they had key intel that he was involved actively in an imminent attack on the US on yes. the US uh, whether that's true or not is very difficult to tell because of course all of the facts that re- uh, would reveal whether that's true or not are hidden from the public eye by every side because I would give away their intel sources and yeah that kind if of you've thing. got a spy in the in the upper echelons of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard you don't want to give away the detail exactly. of that. on the other hand I mean one thing to note is that uh, a l- it does feel a little bit to me like the left has been generally for the last couple of years very patriotically supportive of America's intelligence agencies and very eager to make the argument that they can't reveal all of their sources and they can't disclose all of the facts that they have. At least since 2016. <laughs> yeah. Because, and partly it's because, you know, Trump starts his presidency by saying no Russian interference. The deep and, state is behind everything. And they say, no, 17 agencies say there is interference and we can't give you all of the facts about that because that would compromise national security. And the Republican side is more like, you know, we shouldn't just trust everything. We should try and scrutinize. And the left is like, no, you can't scrutinize because national security. And now like cricket teams swapping between batting and bowling. <laughs> yes. The roles have been perfectly reversed. So, so let's, let's talk a little bit about this dude. Um, I'm writing a piece uh, which probably will be up tomorrow, I think, on the Daily Friend, cool. .co.za, yeah. um, just about this whole incident. And I'm, I'm going to give you kind of an idea of what this, this is. So I'm embarrassed to say that I actually didn't know who Qasem Soleimani is, which mm-hmm. is the fact that I'm not really an expert on these things. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was a pretty interesting guy. One of the reasons that he's not that well known outside of, you know, people who are really, really in the know mm-hmm. is that he kept a little bit of a low profile. Mm-hmm. In fact, uh, there was a excellent New Yorker profile of him written in 2013, which I recommend that everyone read. Um, it's quite long, but it's very good. Um, and his nickname is the Shadow Commander, because he was a, quite a short guy, and very reserved. He wasn't very flashy. He didn't make a big name for himself often. Uh, he didn't give thunderous speeches that often, where he sort of denounced the West, that kind of thing. Mm. He was just an operator. He's a bit like Denzel Washington's character in American Gangster. Yeah, guy says the loudest person in the room is the weakest or most vulnerable person in the exactly. room. Exactly, he was he he lived by that. Mm. Exactly, uh, even though he was a sort sort of short uh, guy, he would come into a room and everyone would fall quiet. He was that sort of character. Mm. Mm. So who is he? Well, he grew up from a very poor Iranian family, sort of like uh, countryside peasants. Um, he joined the revolu- the Iranian Revolutionary Guard, which, to clarify, is like a secondary army. So there's two Iranian armies. And the Iranian Revolutionary Guard is supposed to basically protect the regime from coups and that kind of thing. Um, it's, it's much more ideological than the regular army. And it does a lot of the activities for the Iranian government outside of Iran. It tends to be the more aggressive part of the Iranian government. And who, and who are they? When he's drafted in, is, the, is he drafted into active service so, as it is? So he joins as a volunteer, basically, he, in 1979. The revolution's just happened. He was a follower of one of the disciples of the revolutionary leader, uh, Khomeini. Yeah. Um, and that revolution is to replace the Shah of Iran. The yeah. Shah of Iran, and the Shah is sort of like 
like a monarch. Yeah, he's a, he's an autocrat more, more than a theocrat. Yeah, he he's he's a sort of more secular autocrat. Um, he he's he's backed by the West, but he's also kind of he's trying to sort of modernize Iran, right? He's, yeah. he's you know he's uh, bringing Western culture and stuff into the cities, uh, liberating women, that kind of thing. But he's also quite brutal, mm-hmm. um, and he's not very popular. His government's not very competent. Mm-hmm. So anyway, he gets overthrown by the Islamic Revolution. They set up a revolutionary Islamic republic. And just, sorry, just one last question about that. At the time, because in my lifetime, if I think of the Middle East, theocracies seem to be really the norm. Well, sort of. I mean, was that was that quite was that was that revolution? Uh, was that like Ghanaian independence was to the decolonization project in Africa? Was that a, sort of so? So a, was it unusual at the time for theocrats actually, to overtake autocrats? There's actually not that many direct theocracies in the way that Iran is um, in the world. I think, in fact, it may be one of the only ones, mm. um, because often what you have have in a lot of countries is a cooperation between the monarchy, um, so in Saudi Arabia, for example, and the th- and the th- and the clergy, mm-hmm. the sort of imams, the head imams. Mm-hmm. In Iran, you had a thing where they got rid of the monarch completely and they just left the clergy in power. So the Supreme Council who governs Iran are clergy. There is, they're Shiite Islamic priests. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, so it's, it's unusual in that it's probably, I think, the only country in the world that has a completely direct theocracy. Okay, but I suppose I'm thinking at the time you've got Cold War dynamics affecting all of geopolitics. Yes. And so you've got sort of... Afghanistan seems to me to be an example of a country that they, after... There was something like a theocracy, yeah. Yeah. And that becomes entalibanized yeah. by that battle. Yeah. And, th- and that happens a bit later. Okay. But so, so Iran has this revolution uh, and they're fighting. So when he uh, volunteers to join the, the army, it's, it's to fight against other Iranians. Well, yeah. They've just won and there's a bunch of stuff going on. So within a year of the revolution happening... There's uprisings by the Kurds in the West. Um, mm. There's, you know, people, there's a lot of chaos. Mm. There's also a powerful socialist group who are backed by the Soviets mm. in Iran who want power. Um, but ultimately, the, the religious faction triumphs and immediately they're invaded by Iraq. Yeah. So the reason for that is uh, most of their oil fields are on the border with Iraq in a place called Khuzestan. And the Iraqis attempt to seize those oil fields. Saddam Hussein leads that invasion. He sees basically a weak neighbor. He thinks, I can take advantage yep. of the situation. Exactly. They've just had a coup. They've had like a sort of civil war they're thing. There's uprisings. They, yeah. they can't stop me from taking And they've their lost lunch. their Western backing. And the Soviets don't like them. Yeah. Um, so they're isolated. He goes in. Uh, and it turns into one of the most brutal conflicts after the Second World War. Um, it lasts eight years. And it's a lot of it is a stalemate. Chemical weapons are used freely by both sides. Um, it's quite trenchy. Yeah, it's a lot of sort of. It's almost like the First World War with missiles. Mm. Uh, it's very strange, and it's an it's absolute grueling conflict. At least a million people are killed in that war. So, sure. um, but anyway, Soleimani goes into that war. He apparently, according to the sort of stories that that float to Bass out there, he goes into the conflict carrying. He's as a water carrier basically. 
And by the end of the war, he's a major commander in the Iranian Revolutionary Guard. So he goes from sort of absolutely nothing to the top. Dude, he's water boy. Yeah. He is the ultimate American kind of Hollywood story. Exactly, he is. Uh, he's also known for his sort of personal bravery. He, uh, uh, so often in that war, there were a lot of heavy casualties on the Iranian side in particular because they had to use human wave attacks with lots of sort of fanatical suicide charges mm. in order to hold back the superior Iraqi technology and, and armaments. Mm. Um, and so he was well known for like sort of caring for his men directly, even as sending them to what he called martyrdom. Mm. In, in favor of the regime. Uh, this is a very big concept in, in the in, in Islamic, Iranian Islamic State um, ideology is that the most glorious thing is to be martyred in battle in service of the cause. Right. Um, and didn't you, what's the story about the goat? So he's famous for doing lots of sneaky scouting missions behind enemy lines. And at one point he got the nickname from the Iraqis as the goat thief because he snuck behind Iraqi lines and he stole goats so that he could feed his men hmm. uh, personally. And so they would refer to him as the goat thief commander. I feel like that's got to make you loved by your men. Yeah. No, and he was. You got the break personally to go and so while I'm, snatch dinner, and I don't mean this as a moral judgment, but he was a sort of absolute hero in the sense that he he just he was one of those guys who kind of seems to stand above the rest. Mm -hmm. He's you know he's got talent, ability, bravery, moral courage. Uh, well, sorry, physical not, courage. Yeah, physical courage. Serious physical courage. Um, he uh, there's uh, read an interesting quote from him in that New Yorker piece, which is about how uh, he. He loved the army in the battlefield. Mm. He says at a memorial service for the dead of, of the Iran-Iraq war uh, that the battlefield, some people imagine paradise as a place with maidens and beautiful grass and lovely foods, but I see the battlefield as a paradise because it's where you see the height of human virtue and morality. I think that was a mm. paraphrase of what he said. Mm. Sort of Achilles. Yeah, he, he was a, like an old-fashioned sort of Warrior. type of dude. He really did love the army, and I think he probably loved war a little mm. bit. Mm. So he was that kind of dude. And he was also completely committed to Iran. He wasn't that religious, but he was a fierce nationalist. Mm -hmm. So in 1997, he gets appointed head of what's called the, the Quds Force. So the Quds Force is a little bit like a mixture. It's a subset of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard, and it's a mixture between the CIA and the Navy SEALs. It's mm -hmm. got elite soldiers, mm -hmm. but it's also responsible for doing like spying and clandestine operations, removing governments, doing that kind of stuff for Iran. Now... The Iranian revolutionary regime itself, its kind of larger geostrategic goals, sees itself as um, both the true leader of the Islamic world, mm. as opposed to uh, its contenders, which would be Saudi Arabia and, I suppose, the Islamic State, who also see themselves as the leaders of the Islamic world. Um, but, but a Shiite one, which is unique. So Shia Islam is the smaller of the two sects, big sects, um, but they're the, they're the most popular Shiite country in the world. I think they're one of the only, if not the only, Shiite majority country, except for maybe Bahrain or something. Mm -hmm. um, they also see themselves as heirs of the Persian Empire, right? Which is Farsi. Yeah, which has for a long time de uh, dominated the Middle East, of course. Um, and so they really see themselves as, as, as being destined to rule a great Shiite empire that runs from sort of Afghanistan all the way to... Um, uh, the Mediterranean uh, under protecting it from what they see as the main enemies of the Islamic world, which is um, the West and the Jews, mm. right? There's an explicit element of anti-Semitism in a lot of Iranian mm -hmm. or often they'll, they'll, they'll emphasize Zionism, but it's, right. it's really more than Zionism. It is real anti-Semitism too. Yeah. 
Um, so anyway, Soleimani and anti-Christianism. And I mean, anti- yeah. Judeo-Christianism is sort of so, so Iran, peace in a way. Iran persecutes religious minorities very aggressively. And if I can intercede there, like there's a, I really like this uh, book on the Middle East by Bernard Lewis, mm. a Princeton historian, called What Went Wrong. Uh, I'm not sure if I flagged it before on our sh- show. One of the remarkable things about the piece is that he was writing a, a pretty fusty history that he didn't expect to get much traction outside of academic circles. Uh, but it was pu- he sort of submitted it to his publisher in August 2001. And so with September 11th coming just after that, suddenly people really wanted to know what went wrong in the Middle East as it, in a 1,000-year kind of history format. Yeah. Uh, because he, the usual answers, he says, you know, something internal, maybe you have a racist issue, maybe you say that any time religion is connected to the state, it can't work out, but ignoring the fact that, for example, the Queen of England is... is the head of the Church of England, yeah. Yeah, um, and then the alternative, so that's sort of the anti, that's like a sort of anti-Islam or anti-Arab uh, or, or Persian view, mm. and then the alternative is to be anti-West, anti-white, anti, you know, ever since colonial forces interfered, things have started going wrong. But that doesn't answer the question, well, how come colonial forces could interfere? I mean, the Islamic Dar al-Islam stretched into Europe quite far through Spain and Mm. Portugal uh, on the the east side all the way to Vienna, which was besieged twice. Uh, It was technologically, scientifically much more advanced in so many ways. And And the argument, one of the key arguments that he makes is that nostalgia beset Dar al-Islam from about the time, that, that the, from about 1300, yeah. 1200, 1300. And so they'd look back at the Islamic Golden Age as being a time when their preeminence was even more uh, obvious. And they also have this idea that the, the Quran is the last and final word, yeah. that nothing new can so be discovered. There were two um, sects within Islam of, of kind of theology um, in the sort of 12, 1300s, that period. And they argued very aggressively with each other. And one of them came to the, one of them said, look, it's the ultimate truth. There's nothing that can be discovered from it. It's everything must be derived from it. And the other one said, no, no, it's like a tool to kind of explore the world more. And that second school gets crushed yeah. completely. And so this role that Iran sees itself as playing or that Soleimani sees Iran, Iran as playing of being uh, the inheritor of the of the Farsi Persian Empire. Oh, yeah, the, the Safavid the, dynasty and that. You yeah. Know, like it's, it's really like, it's just, it just feels like a repeat of that nostalgia issue. Yeah. Like once upon a time, we could bully others or and also be more awesome in, in so many great ways. Yeah. Uh, We've got to repeat that. Yeah. So, and if the means to doing that is, uh, if 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 they got that right, at the with blood at the end of a saber, yes. Then that's what we've got to try now. So, so he, um, you could say that within the Islamic uh, regime, there are two kind of um, in in Iran, there are two sort of major factions. So, pretty much all of them are on board with the Islamic Revolution, right? It is. It's a little bit like the ANC. They. Most of them are connected to, are into NDR, National yeah. Democratic Revolution. Yeah. Um, but there's two camps, really. There's a sort of consolidationists who believe in building up Iran first before expanding it to the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and, then, and then there are those who say that if they don't expand their influence over the Middle East, they will be crushed by the West. So Soleimani is a big part of the expansionist faction. And this is so, uh, to give another historical analogy, this is so much Stalin versus Trotsky. Yeah. 
it's a kind of similar sort of idea. It's a problem that a lot of revolutionary regimes have. Yeah, because they get isolated. Also, France had it after 1789. Yes, exactly. If you do something drastic enough uh, that it that you really have undermined the forces of power in your own country, the the, the oligarchs, the yeah. Plutarchs, and so on, and the politicians then your model can be repeated in other countries and it's going to threaten the vested interest there. And so they might club together to try and put you down. And so there's the argument, there's the basis for the argument that you need to expand first and then make things good later. But the alternative tension is that if you don't make things good in your own country, you haven't proven yes. the concept. And so you might get undermined from within. Yeah, exactly. Um, so he leads this, this, he's put in charge of this Quds Force in uh, what, it's late 1997, early 1998, somewhere around there. And he then proceeds to kind of begin rolling out across anywhere in the Middle East where Iran has influence. This pattern where they take Hezbollah, which is active in Lebanon, it's a political party and a militia in Lebanon. Yeah. A big enemy of Israel. And it's almost entirely Iranian backed. They take the model there of how you set it up, how you give weapons to locals, how you kind of emphasize the Shiite religion, how you train people in military terms, and they roll it out as a template everywhere they, they can. Yeah. They do it in Yemen, they do it in Syria. Later, after Saddam goes, they do it in Iraq. Um, and through that, Iran exercises kind of deniable, plausibly deniable ability to attack its enemies. So they can launch an attack on a U.S. base, with basically Iranian troops, right? But because they belong to a militia officially, the Americans can do very little to say, well, this is what, there was an order by Iran to do this. This is an act of war yeah. coming from a government, from a state, yeah. war being that exercise of violence which occurs between states rather than private entities. Exactly. And so we will respond as such. No, 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 this is just terrorism. Yeah. And who's in charge of the terrorist cell? Exactly. I don't know. And the Iranians can always say, well, we completely support the goals of this noble organization. We didn't tell them to do anything. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, in fact, we, would, we don't tell them to do anything at all because they're not under our control. It's the kind of official line. Also reminds one of some Russian soldiers who exactly. were only on holiday exactly. in the, the Donbass, Crimea. <laughs> <laughs> just all at the same time with lots of guns. <laughs> this is how you go on holiday with your friends. <laughs> I mean, it's how I would go on holiday if I did have lots of guns. <laughs> so um, anyway, he, he rolls this out and he, uh, I saw one person describe him as one of the greatest military commanders of the last 20 years in the Middle East. Mm. He kind of combines uh, political strategy, very effective political strategy and pressure on local leaders with the use of these militias. And as a result, he's, part, he's a large part of saving Bashar al-Assad from being overthrown by uh, Sunni rebels in, uh, in Syria. Mm -hmm. um, he strengthens Hezbollah's hand in Lebanon somewhat. Mm -hmm. um, he has a complicated relationship with the US because at first there was, uh, there was some support for the US invasion of Afghanistan because Afghanistan was a fundamentalist Sunni um, state. Mm. The Taliban are, are a Sunni group, not a Shiite group. And they had oppressed Shiites in Afghanistan who make up quite a large chunk of the population. Um, so there was some sort of tacit support a little bit for the US invasion there, getting rid of the Taliban. But Soleimani appears to have been the guy who made the decision that they could take the Al-Qaeda people fleeing from um, Afghanistan, shelter them, as opposed to killing them, which is what many in the government wanted to do because they saw them as enemies, and then release them later at the U.S. to cause trouble. 
So one of, as we've talked about before, one of Iran's big rivals in the Middle East is Saudi Arabia, which is both Sunni and wealthy, and it also has pretensions of being the leader of you know the Islamic world. So they realized that the Sunni extremists hated Saudi Arabia more than they hated Iran because they saw the Saudis as traitors rather than enemies, if that makes sense. Wait, uh, no, just pause there. Yeah. So the Sunnis, you mean the Shiites? So the, the Sunni extremists from the Taliban, from Al-Qaeda, they, they don't like Saudi Arabia more than they don't like Iran. Oh, no, 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 because they're also Sunni. Yeah, they're also Sunni. And they're, so it's like our brothers. Yeah, our brothers are, are betraying us and selling out to the Americans. Yeah. So we hate them more than you Shiites. So even though you Shiites are heretics and all that, you're the next problem. Yeah. First, we deal with the people inside our own community who are a problem. Yeah. Um, he then releases a lot of these guys out into Iraq after the Americans have invaded. And what do the Al-Qaeda guys do? They go and they start planting bombs in Shiite mosques. So on the surface, this looks stupid, right? Oh, why has Soleimani done this? His own people in Iraq are under attack by the Sunnis. Yes. What it does is it forces the Shiite population of Iraq away from the secular parties into the arms of the pro-Iranian forces in Iraq. God, so this does sound like a proper strategist who's willing he's, to take he, a knock in exactly. order to... He's, he's, he's either uh, a cunning opportunist who can think on his feet or he's a grand master strategist. Yeah. One of the two. So it doesn't matter whether... If you've got a grand... If, if it, in retrospect, this is, a, this is a key insight though. In retrospect, if things work out along a very spindly path where you, where you had to do a bit of left and a bit of right and a bit of up and a bit of down in order to navigate the swamp and get to the other side... Some people are going to want to know whether you had the whole plan laid out from the beginning and other people are going to want to know uh, where... And if not, they're going to say then it was just dumb luck. Yeah. But you're saying there's this other way to do it, which is to you at every particular moment be when, able when to analyze... When an opportunity analyze. presents itself, you take yeah. advantage of it. And in a way, uh, that is uh, in, a, in a very different context. Like there are, gr there are books, there are stories that really work very well. And if you look at Sherlock Holmes... Uh, sorry, if you look at Sir Arthur Conan Doyle versus Edgar Allan Poe versus Ag Agatha Christie, those plots, one of the magical things about it is that you keep not knowing, but in the end it all makes perfect sense. Yes. And some of those writers would plan that all out from the beginning, have the whole plot laid out and then write it down. And others would just sort of discover it as they were going along. They'd discover their own mystery as they went along, yeah. But, it's, but you get a grand, you get, you get a puzzle where all of the pieces fit in together in exactly. the end. Exactly. Uh, so those are two different routes to to being a master of the craft of manipulation and and mystery. Anyway, okay. So whichever one, it, whichever one of those particular two he routes he took, and he helps he, to he is extremely Iraq. effective. Yeah, and he then uses his kind of militias and his political skill to bully a lot of Iraqi politicians into Iran's corner, so that Iran then begins to grow in strength in Iraq itself. This is while the Americans are there, and that's subverting. Their project exactly. of having a more stable, having those kinds of differences matter less. Yes. Because, because the things that should matter more yeah, are Bush, sending kids to school. Bush's, Bush's program was what they call draining the swamps of freedom. Uh, sorry, draining the swamps of tyranny. <laughs> draining the swamps of freedom is what he ended up doing. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, you know, you replaced one swamp of tyranny with another, I suppose. Yeah. Um, but he was, he was attempting to drain the swamp of tyranny so that you can then uh, sort of the, the country becomes more secular and it becomes an ally of the West rather than an enemy of the West. Yeah. Soleimani is one of the reasons this fails. So firstly, he helps to start the civil war in Iraq between Shiites and Sunnis. Uh, he then also um, supplies a lot of the Shiite militias and groups there with advanced technology 
in terms of roadside bombs and that kind of thing. One study found that of, I can't remember how many US troops were killed in Iraq, something like 4,000, something yeah. like that. Uh, of them, 600 at least are directly attributable to Iranian-backed technology, militias, that kind of thing. Uh, so effectively, a significant chunk of the US troops killed in Iraq were killed basically under Soleimani's direction. Mm-hmm. He was also fond of taunting the Americans, mm-hmm. um, uh, sending SMSs directly to their commanders, um, sort of saying, oh, you know, it's been so quiet in Iraq, I guess I'm going to have to come back soon, things like that. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> so he doesn't, he, does, he doesn't boast on Twitter, but he does yeah, he doesn't boast on Twitter, whisper but taunts he does, yeah, he does whisper taunts soft lines. directly to his opponents. Yeah. Um, he, uh, he, he, he did help against the fight in, against ISIS somewhat because Iran sees ISIS, the, the, the radical Sunnis of ISIS, as a bit of a threat. Um, and unlike al-Qaeda, who are a little bit more pragmatic, which is a strange thing to say about al-Qaeda. But relatively speaking. When but relatively speaking, compared to ISIS, they were a little bit more pragmatic. ISIS was pragmatic sometimes, but overall they were more keen on killing Muslims and, and infidels really than any other group. Mm. Uh, yeah, anyone who wasn't on board with them. So he helped save um, uh, Bashar al-Assad with his militias from from ISIS, from both ISIS and from the more the bigger threat, which is the Al Nusra Front, which is an Al Qaeda group in uh, in Syria. Um, although, of course, Assad Assad basically has an informal truce later with ISIS, mm-hmm. and it's left to the Kurds to 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 actually do the real fighting against them. Um, he also helps destabilize Yemen. Yemen's a divided country. It's half Sunni, half Shiite. And uh, right on Saudi Arabia's border, right which on kind Saudi of makes Arabia's it border, exactly. Um, and he helps support the Shiite rebels, what are they called, the Houthis, in, in, in Yemen and to set up Iranian influence there. So he seems like a, a mastermind strategist and he's working ex- in this area, getting like an octopus sort of getting his tentacles exactly. into all of the slices around him. So when the Americans signed the, Ir- the Iran deal to try and um, prevent the Iranians developing a nuclear bomb, which is, of course, one of the big things that's going on in the background here is the yeah. Americans don't want Iran to have a nuclear weapon. Uh, they end up paying the Iranians a lot of money to basically stop, stop uh, or stop building the bomb yeah. for 10 years. Yeah. Um, some of that money is pretty much directly sent to Soleimani's operations. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you can't prove these things. But he, gets, it, it looks, but he, it looks, he likely looks like, gets a shot in the arm. Yeah, considering the how tentacles much grow. The tentacles grow. And so the Iranians kind of adopt the strategy of, okay, well, we've got this deal with the Americans. They may pull out of it. They may not. But uh, we're not going to focus on the bomb now. We're going to expand our reach into the neighboring countries, into Yemen, into Syria, into Lebanon, into Iraq. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to make ourselves very strong, and then when the deal expires, we'll finish our bomb, and then we'll be an unstoppable regional power. And then we will, in that way, have achieved the target of being exactly. the leading power of of taking up the mantle again of the Persian Empire. Exactly. Um, the Americans under Trump pull out of this deal, and the Iranians are then kind of forced into a bit of a problem, which is that they want the Americans to come back to the table. Mm-hmm. So they start attacking the U.S.'s stuff in the Middle East. They attack Saudi Arabian oil fields and for a brief period of time knock out half of Saudi oil production with a very targeted ballistic missile strike. Um, they shoot down an American drone. They bomb some tankers in the Straits of Hormuz, which we've talked about previously. Mm-hmm. Thing. 
they mess around in Iraq. Um, the Americans do very little in response because Trump doesn't want a war. Tucker Carlson's out there telling him, uh, you know, if there's a war, you will lose re-election. You will be a warmonger president, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Spend money on... Yeah, spend money just... M- Take, we'll talk about sending things. the troops home and spend money on infrastructure projects. Yeah. But it seems that Mike Pompeo, for particular reasons, was very keen on killing Soleimani. He he saw Soleimani as one of the big threats. Mm-hmm. Him and a couple of others, uh, they get some intel that's not quite clear on Soleimani, uh, where, where they got it from. Some people say it was from the Saudis. Some people say it was from people inside the Iraqi government who were sympathetic to America. Mm-hmm. Um, and they kill him. So the the reason for it, it, the direct reason for it, was because of his role in the embassy attack. But the sort of larger region is that he was one of the big enemies of America and to some extent as well Israel and Saudi Arabia mm-hmm. in the region. Um, and so it's an in that sense, it's a big win for the U.S. He's one of the senior people in the Iranian government, and they kill him. Um, and they rob the Iranians of a key strategic mind, of a sort of hero figure um, who's not just a hero in the symbolic sense, but a hero in the sort of able to motivate people um, with, with, with kind of a soft charisma. He's a dangerous dude. Yeah. C- can I connect those two things? So because there's the, there's the proximate cause, as some historians talk about it, and then there's the, what's the other one, the general cause, the bigger yes. picture. Yeah why this kind of thing. So I do think it's important, you know, the, the UN uh, rapporteur, whatever the sort of expert that they have uh, talking about assassinations or extrajudicial killings um, has said that, you know, generally speaking, you're, you're not allowed to go and kill the other side's generals, especially not if, if you're not in war with them. I do, I do also want to interject. Apparently there was a UN resolution against him preventing him from leaving Iran. And he was killed outside of Iran. In Iraq, yeah. So yeah. that's an important little detail we've got at the front there. So, but it is, uh, so th- that's one qualification. And so that's part of what makes it important that the US is claiming that he was involved in an imminent attack on American yeah. people, because then that does make it justifiable. Yes. Then you're not killing the general of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard, you're killing a soldier who's on his way, or a, or a, or a terrorist, whatever, who's on his way yeah. to killing your people. Um, should we trust the central intelligence, should we tr- trust the intelligence agencies? On the one hand, I want to say no, emphatically, uh, because of... Their incentives line up very badly in this case. Their incentives lining bad up, and the track record not being good. Uh, in the Middle East, and I'm I'm still f- sort of p- piqued by Iraq, the weapons of mass destruction, chemical weapons, kind of. And some of that, though, of course, is complicated by how much politicians were abusing the process and misrepresenting what's going on, but that could also be what's happening here. On the other hand, um, it does seem like in, in the longer term, if, if it is a lie, it's very likely to come out. I think since the Pentagon Papers, the, Ameri- the Americans have s- established and correct me if I'm wrong, a sort of system where after a couple of decades, everything comes out about everything. everything. comes out mm-hmm. about everything. And so you do have, if nothing else, that legacy incentive not to uh, totally yeah. screw things up. I, 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 you know, I think probably if there is fudging here by the Americans, it's on the 
that imminence bit. So he was definitely involved in attacking U.S. interests and citizens around the world and in the Middle East. But, you know, how likely it was, oh, apparently he was also involved at one point in trying to blow up the Saudi ambassador right when the Saudi ambassador was a block from the White House hmm. by paying Mexican drug cartels to do it. That pot was foiled. But that's kind of the, the thing Soleimani was up to. And so, so, and so, and I just want to give like an abstract, uh, just a thing about how how splinter cells work. Mm. So, so if you've got a splint, if you've got a proxy army, which is what the Iranian Revolutionary Guard basically is, so you've got that one layer of plausible deniability. What you then often do find uh, across history is the establishment of cell groups, which allow then further layers of plausible deniability. So within a cell, you, you get a key function that needs to be played out by a certain grouping of people, and then another key function being played out by another grouping of people, but they don't know each other, they don't know exactly how their actions fit into the master plan. And that is generally how intelligence operations work. Everyone who's watched a movie will know the phrase need to know basis, like you don't get to know everything. But the difference is in, uh, Theoretically, in a, in a formalized army, if some attack is being planned, there are written orders. If a general is taken out, there'll be other generals who know what the plans are. They know the phone numbers of who to contact and how everything, how all of those cells fit together. Yeah. When you have this kind of uh, operation, is much wishy-washier. Mm -hmm. it, and it can be the case that you've got uh, uh, one person who really is the only person who can put together the, you know, who knows the cartel, the head of the cartel's phone number and also knows the banking guy's phone number and knows the bank account to which the money has to be deposited. None of this is going to happen if the money doesn't go through at the right time. But for that to go through, he needs to get the check in from his other group that he's hired to make sure that the Mexicans are doing the right thing. So taking out one unit, taking out the oct octopus head at the center of the thing does render the whole thing uh, does does take it out. And yeah. so octopus is not a good metaphor because their brains are in their legs, but it can be more like a like a bicycle with its spoke. And if you just undo that bolt holding it together, the whole thing, together, apart, the whole yeah. thing falls apart. I, I, I would also like to say that there was a so, uh, there was a quote I forgot earlier from Soleimani, which is attributed to him, which is, uh, we're not like the Americans, we don't abandon our allies, which is the best criticism of American foreign policy I've heard. <laughs> and it comes from an Iranian <laughs> general. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, he is a smart guy. And so it's at least was. plausible. <laughs> he was a smart guy. It's at least plausible that there's this imminent threat and that that gives him the legal justification for an assassination. Yeah. Uh, but the bigger know, picture view is that they wanted this guy gone. That they wanted this guy gone because they think, and this is why I say I wasn't so surprised because of conversations we'd been having last year. They see perhaps that Iran, that, that, that while there's this ideological, while there's this methodological split within the uh, corridors of power in Iran between should we consolidate first and expand first, that there's this real politic power play that can be made, which is going to embolden those who take one of those ideological views and weaken those who take the other. In other words, if you can take out the master planner of their expansionist project, you not only make it harder, you not only halt expansion for a moment, you also disincentivize people who are interested in that uh, and, and embolden those who are into consolidating now. You give them hard evidence, look, uh, if we keep trying to do this thing, we're just going to keep being foiled by a country that's much more powerful than us. And at a personal level, it personalizes the politics. It's saying it's not just about people, distant people who are going to be impoverished by us sending more of our money into oil to go to Syria. Mm. It's, this, is, this, is, this might affect you personally. The Americans are willing to take you out even if you're not a frontline soldier. Yeah. 
So so let's just finish the story here quick because we're going a bit long. Um, so I'll wrap up pretty much what I, what I think is, is going to happen going forward. So what happens in response to this? The Iranians fire 22 missiles at American bases in Iraq. Um, it's not clear whether they... And is that the formal Iranian army? That is the Iranian uh, government, yeah. army, uh, Iranian Revolutionary Guard in Iran. It's not proxy groups outside. It is the Iranian government. It's, it's, yeah. it's If the Americans wanted to, it's a completely... That is, you know, war declaring if you want, yes. want to. Um, now, they managed to not kill a single person. Mm-hmm. And now Iranian missiles are quite advanced. They're, they're not like the rockets that Hamas shoots at Israel. Mm-hmm. They're accurate and they're advanced. They managed to not kill anyone. There's a number of theories about this. One is that the Iranians deliberately missed because they wanted to look like they were showing a strong response but didn't actually want the Americans to hit them back again and then escalate to war. Uh, one idea is that the Americans' uh, missile detection system is so good that they detected all of the launches long before uh, there was any risk to their soldiers and so, as a result, could get everyone to bunkers before anything happened. Um, and the other one is that they did sort of aim them at actual targets, but that they told um, Iraq and Finland, is the other story I've heard. No one expects Finland. (laughs) Beforehand, that there was going to be risk to their soldiers and civilians, Mm. knowing that those governments would then leak it to the Americans. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, So in in other words, pretending like you're not missing, that you're not trying to miss, but you do miss, you've set it up so that you look like you're retaliating, but you haven't. They told their own people, Iranians, that they had killed 80 American soldiers on the night. Mm -hmm. They had killed none. Mm-hmm. No Iraqis either. Uh, most of the spaces are filled with Iraqis, actually, not Americans. Right, and then I've heard people doubt that and be like, maybe they did kill American soldiers, but the Americans are keeping that under wraps. But that's quite hard to believe. That's because very difficult in the US. It's, uh, yeah. They could maybe cover up Iraqi deaths, Yeah, but covering up American deaths is very difficult. Yeah, um, There's a lot of people who keep a very tight eye on the American government, and it would, I think it would leak very easily. Yeah. Uh, particularly when it comes to you know soldiers, where did soldiers die? Yeah, also soldiers have yeah they've got families. Yeah, they the families have to be notified. And if you tell them it was in a car crash and whatever, then the family is a little bit suspicious of it. Yeah, and they call the New York Times, and then there's three calls coming to the New York Times about how did my son just happen to die in a car accident and on and the same day? Yeah, yeah, um, yes, it would be very suspicious. So I think it's probably true that no one was killed, um, and also then the Iranians, in their panic, thinking the Americans had fired a cruise missile back a anti-aircraft or an anti-missile battery in Iran shot down a Ukrainian passenger jet, which is a topic for another day, but that's just, uh, yeah, I think it demonstrates a lot of incompetence in the Iranian Mm. regime's forces. And really staunches any further retaliation efforts that they might be interested in doing. Yeah, because now they look really bad. They look dumb, weak. Yes. So what happens now? Well, one idea is that the Iranians see that they've, achieved nothing and so they're like okay no we have to hit the americans properly now and so they'll use a proxy force or something to blow up a school bus of children or some horrible thing like that mm-hmm. um but the other alternative and i think this is possible is the iranians realize that they need to play a longer game they can't be so aggressive they might continue going for the bomb mm. maybe they might not um but the door has been opened now for the consolidationist faction to say Guys, this isn't working. We've Our economy is shrinking by 9% in 2019. We've got protests all the time against our regime. And we have to kill people to put those protests down. They're serious yeah. protests. And they then killed the 1,500 people in the this last This is time. really how you make yourself, yeah. uh, make it very difficult to stay in power. 
uh, we're spending all this money on these foreign wars that we cannot afford and that are unpopular at home. A lot of the protests are explicitly against the foreign wars. Yeah. We need to pull back. We need to come to a ceasefire with the Americans. Maybe we keep developing the bomb. Maybe we abandon it. We build up at home and then we see how the next 10 years go. Yeah. That door is now open. Whether the Iranians will choose that door or not is anyone's guess. We will have to see in foreign politics. You have to very much take a let's let's see what's going to happen approach. Mm. Um, it's very difficult to predict what's going to happen like with the Iraq war. Mm-hmm. You, know, you knew what the consequences would be down the line. You could guess, but at the end of the day, you ha- only time will tell. Um, but I think that in this sense, it has been a masterstroke of American foreign policy, if they can get away with it. So far they have. Mm. The Americans have managed to kill a top Iranian general with no casualties on their side. All right. So and from one, to, from to one act of genius to another. Uh, Putin, what, he... Uh, well, the whole Russian government resigned or something, which yeah, normally whole, would shock people. More yeah. Than it is. So, and what was it? Was it mutiny? Was the government resigning in protest? No. They were resigning because they love Putin so much. <laughs> so what is he trying to do? Very briefly, it seems like he's got a few big ideas. Uh, the best quote was uh, at the announcement of the resignation of his entire government, Putin said... There were a few things that didn't work out. Yeah. <laughs> it's been great. It's been wonderful, but there was one or two things wrong. Some details. Yeah. So one of the things that he's proposing, as far as I can tell, is to take away the word consecutive in the limitation of a president to have more than two terms. So A loophole which he himself abused. Yeah. And that would be a way of him. So it would basically go from you can do the Putin Medvedev shuffle where you can have two terms as president, then you can go away for a term, then you can have another two terms as president, then you go away for a term. So you can rule for life in this weird way to, no, you get two terms like in South Africa and that's it. Yes. So I think that's the kind of reform that pretty much everyone would get behind. That's a good reform. That seems like really good. It's a solid liberal reform. Where... Is Putin going to go? The, another one of the reforms is, generally speaking, uh, to strengthen the federal nature of the Russian system mm. for power to be more distributed, uh, so less of it to be housed in Moscow. Because mm. Moscow, I mean, it's like if you look if you look at uh, Russia from a satellite at night, you sort of get Moscow the sense very, very much big. that Moscow is Moscow is the biggest city in Europe outside of Istanbul. And the, the project of... And the, and the rest of Russia is quite small. It's, there's a lot of mm-hmm. darkness. And, and, and Moscow really is like the spoke at the, mid, at the middle of a bicycle and everything kind of leads to it. And the, the so there's, a, there's good reason, even much more than Washington. You know, people often in the American context speak about like we want to disempower Washington, stop it from bullying the rest of us. Moscow really is like the center of things. So federal, federalizing Russia further, I think would probably be a good idea too. So one of the reasons I don't particularly like uh, Russia as a state... Uh, in general, is because I think that this project of the last sort of 400 years of Russian history has been an awful tendency to centralize everything around the capital and the czar and that kind of thing. And so moves to federalism, I think, are a very good thing for Russia. Yeah, so f- France, much worse. Yes, France uh, is... Well, I don't like France <laughs> But at least France is, you know, tiny compared to Russia, which is a gigantic behemoth of a nation. So it might pull a federalization better. So we'll see. I don't know. Yeah, it's um, more appropriate for Russia, at least. And then the third thing is kind of to find a new place for Putin himself. So it looks like uh, his options are to continue as president. Uh, the that, that one's a little bit hard to square up with the two consecutive terms thing. 
Unless he's got some other scheme at play here that we haven't seen yet. Yeah. We don't understand yet. The second idea is for him to become the Speaker of Parliament of the Duma. Duma means think, by the way. Anyway. It's uh, a good name for a parliament. Yeah. The place of thought. So I think that that is an interesting move. Uh from a philosophical, okay. So if you if you do computer, if you've done any computer science or or management structuring, anything in a business, task there. One thing is task execution. Here's a task. How do you execute it? Another thing is task ordering. What are you going to do now? What are you going to do tomorrow? How you can which which group uh, or which part is going to be dedicated to what task? Um, task ordering is extremely important and and often underrated, I think, by people outside of those sort of fields of expertise, and. Of course, not Russians though, because they know that the, in Parliament, the, ta- the person who does the task ordering is often called the secretary or the speaker. And Stalin was the person in charge of task ordering, yes. and that's how he beat Trotsky. I Trotsky was the most charismatic communist, other than Lenin, maybe even more so. A better writer was also the general of the army, someone everyone could get behind. He won, and yet Stalin managed to outmaneuver him. A lot of it had to do with the fact that he kept the minutes. And he set the agenda. There's a quote attributed to Stalin that it matters not to who votes, but who counts the votes. Yeah. So to have to have to have Putin move from president to speaker of of the Duma, I think would fit in line with our view of Putin mm. uh, as being someone who really likes to be very close to the center of power I think and who's very strategic. And I think would be able to use that position very strategically to protect those he thinks are worth protecting and yeah. to harm those he thinks is worth harming. The very the most uh, just okay the third position that he might go to is to become the head basically of the of the uh, of uh, it's called Gossaviet, which as far as i can tell is a body that represents the federal states Mm-hmm. And it's so far, I think it's been a lot like our NCOP, the National Council of Provinces. Not, doesn't really do much. No one knows anything about it. Supposedly, mm-hmm. that's where the, the states, the provinces are represented. Having Putin go there would, just by force of personality and yes. because of the, the, the real connections net position mm-hmm. that he holds in the power network, would possibly uh, be a further way to embolden the states, to make, to make each state uh, have a better chance of leveraging power of, of of pulling power back from moscow towards itself yeah which might be a good thing the third so those are the three things that he wants to do th- that all sounds think, quite positive I think that is important to note is that in sort of very autocratic regimes um once you become very firmly established what official position you hold in government doesn't always count that much for as what uh your your personal connections, your personal power, your personal charisma, your personal reputation. Yeah. Um, and so it's entirely possible that even as not President Putin could continue to run the country until his death. Yeah. And why? Okay. So I, yeah, think, I think uh, I think that's know, perfectly correct. I saw Deng, and Xiao, Deng Xiaoping. Yeah. I don't think he held any major position in the government itself until. Like a, just occasionally, I think he was head of the Chinese Bridge Society or something. <laughs> we're going to fact check that. <laughs> yeah, we may need to fact check that. But I have someone told me that once. So, 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 so I think I, uh, I think you're absolutely correct about how how uh, real autoc- real autocrats can work. Uh, I do think that there's an, if nothing else, an important symbolic quality to okay. Is Russia going more towards like this bureaucrat? 
uh, task ordering. It's more mechanical. It's more like a machine. It is more like a computer. The thing that makes it efficient is our the guy that we love. And you must remember, Russians love Putin, hate the government. They all know that there's a lot of corruption. Like you look at uh, Russian confidence in the poli- in the police, in the judiciary, in parliament. It's about as low as ours. Their difference is there. They think the president's super great. In fact, so it's a lot like Ramaf. Russia for the last 20 years has been much like South Africa was for about five minutes after Ramaphosa became president, where everyone thought he's the one guy who's going to save us. So yeah. if he moves then to being the Speaker of the House, the Speaker of the Duma, it seems like, okay, well, the way that Russia is going to save itself, the message we're getting, is by keeping very strict schedules and diaries. Versus if he moves to the federal, if he moves to the Gossoviet, uh, we're going to save ourselves by allowing different identities to become more celebrated and for power to be centralized and to go against Moscow. Just to, to clarify, so I'm not entirely correct, but I'm sort of correct in that Deng never held office as head of state, head of government, or general secretary of the Communist Party. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, and yet remained the most powerful. And Folland is, yeah. is, is responsible for the, for the revolution that they had after their revolution. So... To, to wrap up with Russia, I think that those reforms kind of throw people's nose out of joint because they, are, they're all, they all seem like really good moves. The problem is, and, and, if, and, and I think they come in the context of Putin being a guy that uh, the economist, when it still had nice things to say about him, would say the, the best thing about Putin is that he has this a very close connection to history. He reads a lot of history books. He quotes them a lot. He clearly cares about how history perceives leaders and will care, therefore, about how history perceives himself. Uh, He wants to be... He thinks in, you know, whereas most people, presidents, politicians, think in four, five, ten-year terms, he really thinks in a hundred-year terms. He wants to know in 2100, what can I do to make sure that I'm respected? Uh, As someone who came to power at a time when the uh, Russian... People had been financially raped by the rapid privatization uh, that that came too late and came too quickly of of the Soviet Union, and therefore we got overtaken by oligarchs. I came in. I was autocratic. I had to do a few nasty things to get rid of the oligarchs. But to tamp down revolution. Mm. But I set us up for becoming a mm. stable uh, American-style democracy, or maybe more German-style democracy. Yeah. And uh, this does all seem to be in line with that. Here's a key fact that doesn't seem to be in line with it. It looks like one of the reforms being put, being uh, that might come to their constitution, is to allow senators to directly fire judges. <laughs> well, that doesn't sound good. Which would make it impossible for a judge to. Which to, would make it much more difficult for, for a judge to make a politically unpopular decision. Yes. For example, Medvedev, one of the most important videos I think you can watch on YouTube, uh, is of uh, made by Navalny, who's long been a sort of thorn in Putin's side. Uh, I think that there are lots of question marks to put behind Navalny's name and his agenda, but one of the things that he did is he commissioned quite a deep dive investigation into Dmitry Medvedev's personal finances and uncovered a lot of very nasty looking facts and and then sent drones to make this vivid in a in a in a media new media age over Navalny's various nkandlas. Navalny's got about five or six nkandlas, and they are all fabulous. And half of them are supposedly orphanages for children, but no child has ever gone through there. No money has ever. Yeah, yeah. But you can see drone footage of of Navalny hanging out with his family and and holidaying, and also a yacht. So. I am worried about their judiciary's ability. 
one of the problems is when you when you come to the point where your criminal justice system is super ineffective or super corrupt. It's a very hard egg to unscramble because that those are the guards who are supposed to sort of... And it causes a sort of general lawlessness in society because once you can corrupt judges for political purposes, you can corrupt them for other things often as yeah. well. So that's a nasty business uh, if, it, if that happens. On the other hand, you know, clearly some judges need to be fired. So it'd be great if there was some perfect way to do it. Uh, yeah, well, God or the Tsar might descend <laughs> uh, in the f- in the form of who knows what, <laughs> as we often wonder in Russia, to to make it all right. And short of that, we we are, I think, like with Iran, going to have to uh, keep our eye on the story. Yes, let's go to the third and last thing, and we're going to do this, which is really advice also for our for our countrymen. Um, mostly, our two favorite targets of criticism, which is the the Democratic Alliance and Sir Ramaphosa. Yeah. So you have this great concept of uh, esteem investment, which yeah. is in the it's it's very similar to money investment or to power investment. Exactly. So, uh, just to give the background again, the, uh, the basic insight coming from uh, philosophers like Philip Pettit and Immanuel Kant and Spinoza and Aristotle and Sir Thomas of Aquinas and Ibn Sina, you know, Muslims, Jews, Christians, secularists, Buddhists, uh, you you go for the last two thousand years, Confucius. Anyone who's thought very abstractly about humans' relations uh, with, within a serious academic tradition seems to have come up with a s- similar idea. There are three basic social goods, power, property, prestige, esteem. The third one you could call esteem yeah, yeah. or you could call it honor or something like that. Basically the likes or the positive regards of, other, of others. There is no such thing as property without other people saying, no, this agreeing this is yours. There is no such thing as power without other people doing what you tell them to do. Mm. And there is no such thing as prestige or status or likes or esteem without other people affirming you. Yes. So we want all three of those things and individuals want them more or less in different balances. Uh, but we have... Economics, which seriously studies the scarcity of, of, of property. We have uh, political theory, political science. How power is distributed and all that kind of thing. A scarcity of power. But there's, there's no real kudonomics. There's no cool, cold analysis of how esteem is distributed. Yeah. Once you start well, looking some, at... Some of the other subjects sometimes wave into it. Yeah, sociology drifts in and drifts out, and anthropology drifts in and drifts out. There's a lot of uh, fetishizing. Uh, but also a lot of sociology is rubbish. <laughs> right. So, I mean, one of the great things about P- Philip Pettit, this, I would say the best political theorist at Princeton University at the Woodrow Wilson School of International Relations and its philosophy department, is uh, one of his really smart insights is an historical one, which is that uh, when sociology and anthropology were born, Tyler and uh, the, the likes, uh, uh, Claude Levi Strauss and so on, it was at a time when Europe's power was waning. It was also at a time when uh, Europe, Europeans were doing a lot of exploration and uh, recording that exploration and popularizing it. So often what happened, there's an analogy with religion, which is that uh, people would often sort of play the following, anthropologists would often do the following thing or, or, or religious studies people would do the following thing. We've got God, we've got Jesus, so what do you have? And because of that, a lot of religious studies, I think, ended up being quite silly because they weren't really looking at what was going on. The, the mistake made with uh, esteem was that there were such massive ructions in the esteem economy of Europe. With World War I, you already started, you have the collapse of the idea of the martial warrior. This exactly the same yeah. that Soleimani was saying, the battlefield is paradise. People used to think yes. that. The charge of the light brigade is not for us to ask why it's us for us to do and die this is the highest honor that you can have as a british soldier is which to goes right stake back the flag to down and kill you people know, ancient days of 
noble warriors fighting. That goes for honor. two thousand and years through through Europe, and then you get the poets coming back saying, "Men are digging graves and rotting in them." Mm. That's what a trench is. That's what it's warfare really is. It's stupid. Nasty, the Battle yeah. of the Somme is complete idiocy. Hundreds of thousands of people dying because the smart elite upper crust officers that have been appointed by being born into positions of privilege are sending good, hardworking, smart Welsh and Irish and Scottish and English boys to die for no good reason at all. Also, the causes belly of the war is very hard for people to understand. Mm. So that war, uh, combined with the fact that you have a lot of aristocrats losing a lot of money, Downton Abbey sort of tells the story, and then that happens through from 1914 through 1945, you have a huge redistribution of wealth, really means that people stop thinking of honor in the way they used to think of it. They stop thinking of mom and sir and it, it, uh, the so manner of the house being the sort of carriers of the national honor and they start thinking of hard work and talent and this kind of thing yeah, as being what really that, matters that and that the US uh, has a culture that's very opposed to sort of aristocracy and that kind of stuff you can't have a lordly title in America it's illegal exactly um, and so the increasing power of America and American culture also helps to kind of reinforce this trend in Europe and tamp it down and all this that. victory and so Precise, and so what? What? What people? What? What scientists or social scientists or or or, or basically just semi novelists end up doing is they go and visit other cultures and they're like, well, we have money and power and military and police and so on. What do you have? Oh, you have honor, status, doing things for the family tradition. You can look at it in the way that the West looks at Japan, how they sort of fetishize the samurai culture and the honor and all that sort of thing. And so they stop seeing that we have honor too. And that we have an esteem economy too, and that our esteem economy is just as much interrelated with the prestige, with the power economy, and the property economy. Okay, so this is all to say uh, why I think it is that most listeners won't be feeling like I went to high school, I went to university. How come we didn't get taught kudonomics? Uh, we got taught maybe a bit of branding and how marketing yeah. yourself well is a the good sort idea. of more shallow version of it rather yeah. than the full one. But there's an insight there. Anyway, so the, the, the simple idea with money, though, you haven't thought about investment at all unless you've noticed that when you invest, you generally go from having some money to having less to then later having more. Yeah, you've got to spend money to make money. Everybody knows that. Yep. When it comes to power, it's not always the case, but often it's the case that if you're prepared to release some of your power now, and it could be through delegation, it could literally mm. be through resignation from an office, you can, if you invest well, come to have much more power later. And exactly. Boris Johnson, I think, is the, is the best exemplar just at the moment of it. He was the, uh, the head of the foreign office. He was the minister. And this was during, sort of after Brexit. And then he, he resigned. He didn't like how things were going. He relinquished mm -hmm. his power. Some people said, you know, Boris Johnson's always wanted to be prime minister. One of the key ways to get through there is through the, the, the office that he was in. He's now sort of admitted defeat. He stepped away. He's never going to get back. This is his career over. They were wrong by relinquishing power. He set himself up perfectly to take much more power, I think, not uh, just to become prime minister, but to become prime minister with the strongest mandate that a prime minister's had in the UK for quite a guess. while. Uh, Helen Zilla does sort of a similar thing, right? By stepping down from the DA, kind of going before a lot of people inside the party say that it's time for her to go. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's still, you know, there's some people who say it, but there's a lot of people who say, no, no, one more election, one more election. Um, she steps down, and as a result, a whole faction of the party sees her as a savior when she comes back, even though when she left, a lot of her political capital was quite low. You mm -hmm. know, there was this kind of colonialism tweet thing going after mm -hmm. her over and over again. And then there was the uh, 
the fact that she had made some mistakes and sort of uh, appointments and appointments and things like that and trends that she had not fought against inside the party yeah and so by going out she kind of recharges and she comes back uh, as very powerful yeah so it happens in property it happens in power what about in prestige well it's exactly the same isn't it it's exactly the same if you are and it, one of the you know if you're honest often you're going to end up saying something unpopular Hmm. In the short run, people are going to flash back and say, why are you saying that nasty thing? Why are you being... But in the long run, they're going to say, well, I esteem you. I estimate you to be someone who estimates other people properly, who I can trust. It's exactly like if you have an intervention for a friend of yours who's an alcoholic, right? And you call him a drunk and useless at the intervention because you say that you're hurting everyone around you. At the time, he's probably going to be very upset with you, right? He's going to say, you're an asshole. He's going to say, why why are you calling me these things? I thought we were friends and all that. But he then gets sober and two years later, he says, you saved my life because you actually you actually were willing to say what needed to be said and I now realize that you're a better person than I thought you were even before. And I love you and I want yeah. you to be the best man at my wedding. Exactly. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so, this, so this is this is for serious. And we spoke about, uh, I think South Africa is a little bit uh, slow, a little bit retarded in the, in the retardando, in the Italian musical term, mm. sense of the term. And so in 2017, the main story was New Dawn. Yes. Why? Because Nkosasana Damini Zuma was fighting against Cyril Ramaphosa and Ramaphosa won. And that was correct. And that was the moment of the New Dawn was November, December 2017. But we only started talking about New Dawn in 2018. In 2018, the problem was False Dawn. Yes. Okay. But we only started talking about it in 2019. What happened in 2018? The president said we want to expropriate property without compensation and a bunch of other stupid things. And as a result, uh, uh, money started fleeing and the, and the, and and the economy is beginning to contract. Or and, the, and you had these two conflicting forces. The new dawn, uh, there was new energy, there was new enthusiasm, but as much as new stuff was coming in was also going out yeah. and that was already the problem. 2019, we saw the red dawn. It is a real red dawn that we saw last year. We saw the government moot prescribed assets. We saw the government moot uh, nationalizing the Reserve Bank. NHI. We saw the government moot turning uh, every Health, clinic and into hospital health. into a new ESCOM. Yeah. We saw uh, the government say that SAA can fly. Yes, which can't. Which it can't. Well, it can. It just loses money every time it does it. Yeah. <laughs> and, and not saying it can fly with like a, a nice idea of how we can make it happen. Just don't touch us on our state-owned enterprises. Yes. We want to expand them rather than con- con- contract them. We saw raises going to the overstaffed S- uh, uh, ESCOM and so on. And, and most importantly, we saw par- uh, f- further motions towards expropriation without compensation. So 2020, what happens after the Red Dawn? You know, may I? So my prediction is because that's what actually happened last year. It's what people are going to start noticing by the end of this year. But what we need to do this year is address that fact. Mm. We need to address the fact that the economy is shrinking in we real need, terms. Yeah, we need we need someone to go out there and say people need to be fired. We need to cut the spending here. We need to do this. We need to reform this regulation. We need to make all these really hard, unpleasant choices that will hurt some people. And in the people short are going to shout and kick and scream we and need be to get very angry, BE. like drunks who just being told that you know who, whose friends have now come to say that you're ruining your life. Exactly. And yeah, and this is the year. This is the year. I don't know that realistically we can end BEE this year. No, but realistically, but I think to, it is realistic we have to make headway that by the end of this year, every South African. Must, must have thought about it and that serious politicians must have committed themselves to when they think BEE should end. Mm. Some people think it should end immediately. 
if people want to think that it shouldn't end immediately, they should come up with a number. It should end in five years. It should end in 10 years. It should end in 20 years. Even just that mm. would be a major step in the right it direction. Mm. And I think for that to happen, people are going to invest, they are going to have to invest their esteem. They're going to have to say, the credibility that I now have, I have to put it in there. I have to go into this conversation knowing that I'm going to be slapped in the face, knowing that people are going to be angry at me and, and that they're going to do their best to humiliate me. But knowing also that those very same people, I'm not saying other people, I'm saying those very same people, if you speak patiently and slowly and you hew to the truth, are going to come back after not that long and say, you know what? You were right. And uh, the next major elections are in 2022 and the next major, major elections so are the, 2024. Yeah. So now is the time. If not now, it's never. No, don't kid yourself thinking 2021 is going to be the year for it. So I think there's two specific examples of where this really needs to happen. One is the DA needs to reject affirmative action on, on the basis of race. Um, unambiguously, just go for it and it'll take a lot of heat for it, but in the end, it will be proven correct. And the second place is Cyril Ramaphosa on SOEs. Yeah. He needs to make the very hard decisions. He needs to actually do the stuff that will fix ESCOM. Yeah. And no, and Cyril Ramaphosa has to forswear EWC. He has to say, yes. he's from the, started, from the very start, he left a little window open for himself. He said, I'm in favor of this because the policy conference said so. And we've got an opportunity for another policy conference now. Because the policy conference said so, and only if it doesn't cost uh, affect food security or the economy. It's already co affected the economy. That's all he has to know. He can say, okay, guys, I thought it was a good idea because we all thought it was a good idea. We've thought about it further. We've consulted the experts. We've looked at the effects that it's had on the economy. No more. Property rights are secure. We want to do land reform. We want to help poor black farmers get ahead. But we're not going to do that by spiting the white. And That's not the route forward. And he will take heat for it, but in the end, it will be proven correct. It will make him, his chances of, of getting a proper majority for the ANC in 2024 are directly correlated to his willingness right now to take the heat. With that, I think we're going to draw two crickets to a conclusion today. Thank you for listening. Thank you very much.